everybody, and welcome back to more of a comment than a question. I am one of your hosts, Paul Connor, and I'm joined as always by my talented and highly accomplished co-host, Rachel Hartman. Rachel, how are you today? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for the compliments. Um, yeah, it's it's been a week or two. Um, I've been busy moving, uh, so as you can see, you two can see, not our listeners, it, but um, it looks I'm in good. my yeah, thank you. It's my new office that I. It's just mine, so I don't have to share it with Luke anymore. Listeners can't hear, nice. but there's a lot of natural light behind Rachel. <laughs> Impressive yeah. bookshelf. Yeah, I like the bookshelf. Lots of books. Thank you. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's been uh, fun settling in, and um, I'm going to Israel tomorrow. So it's just like. Oh. Really hectic. Going to visit my family. Cool. Uh, yeah, awesome. last time I went on the way back, I was like in the plane as they were shooting missiles at us, and we had to like get off the plane because we were like, you know, you could like see wow. them from the window. And so I'm hoping for less drama this time. And That's just, like, crazy. They were shooting missiles at your plane directly, it, like at the airport. And yeah, hey, guest. We haven't introduced you yet. <laughs> okay. So I will be silent. <laughs> so, okay. So, uh, yeah. chiming in ahead of his introduction is a guest we're very excited about. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Steve Rathji, postdoc at NYU. Thank you. Yeah. Um, sorry for being poorly behaved and chiming in, but I'm very happy to be here as a longtime fan of the podcast. It's um, very exciting to finally be on. And to see I'm, your faces instead of, you know, <laughs> hear your disembodied voices. I'm happy to hear you describe yourself as a fan. Uh, the last time we discussed the pod, it didn't uh, end up in such amicable terms. Um, so, yeah, Steve and I met at the uh, Center for the Science of Moral Understanding conference this past May. Um, and uh, we got into, I think it was in May, maybe June. Um, we got into a bit of a heated discussion. <laughs> where Steve uh, got up and left the table at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is, I think we have different memories of how this, like, how this event went down. I think my memory is we had um, a very friendly discussion. Well, okay, my memory of the situation is, like, I approached you. I said I was, like, a fan of the podcast. I was, like, looking for you all day. I was like, oh, where's Rachel? And then I talked to you. And uh, then, uh, yeah, we, we discussed... Um, billionaires basically i forgot what exactly we feuded about it was something about whether billionaires should be in jail or whether grad students should be paid more um and uh yeah <laughs> as rachel likes to tell it i got heated and I, I left the table but i don't remember it is that heated i think i wanted to leave and like talk to a professor i was like looking to talk to for a while but um but i like the way you tell the story because i think it makes a very good first impression of me to everyone <laughs> for sure yeah and uh it, uh, and, you know i don't know i feel like um it was it was like a very meaningful moment in my life like i i <laughs> got someone so mad about what i was saying that they just like got up and left that really doesn't happen to me very often so um Again, differing perceptions, differing perceptions. It's all, it's, it's all, we'll never all love, know. all friendship, all amicable. Yes. But yeah, I promise I won't get uh, so heated that I'll, I'll leave this podcast, but I, I guess we'll find we'll out. 
<laughs> we'll find out. And and we're not opposed to that, Steve. I think that could be really interesting. We've never had a guest get so upset that they just uh, stormed off and left the podcast. So uh, that could be memorable content. So yeah. let's let's leave it on the table. And let's as we happens. know, controversy and outrage, you know, it drives engagement and virality. So it might be good for you guys. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's an interesting point. So there's, there's this paper <laughs> out, which uh, coincidentally, I think you're an author on. Um, and that was kind of the point of it. So I I read the paper last, last couple of days. I was looking at it and I found it really interesting, especially Facebook's response to it mm-hmm. and your response to Facebook. So um, nice, nice segue. Uh, let's, let's talk a bit about that. So first off, um, tell us, tell us about this paper. Tell us about your research. What, what, uh, did you find? Yeah. So this paper came out a little bit over a year ago and it's called outgroup animosity drives engagement on social media. Um, and I started the project a couple of years ago. And basically it began with me analyzing big data sets of social media posts from liberal and conservative news outlets on Facebook and Twitter, as well as social media posts from Congress members on Facebook and Twitter. And I was interested in looking at the biggest drivers of virality. So that's, you know, likes, retweets, shares, engagement, all of that on Facebook and Twitter. And I wanted to build on some previous work that found that moral and emotional language, so words like hate and, um, anger and evil. Uh, I wanted to build on previous work that showed that these kind of words drove virality. Like if you include these words in social media posts, people are more likely to engage. Also, some other work shows that negative emotional language most uh, is likely to drive virality. But I noticed a lot of previous work looked at how emotions drove the virality of social media posts. Uh, I wanted to go a little bit beyond this perspective and more look at um, how social identity drove virality online, uh, specifically referencing an in-group or an out-group or um, dunking on an in-group versus praising, uh, sorry, dunking on an out-group versus praising an in-group. So uh, we looked at various predictors of virality of these social media posts. And um, interestingly, we found that the biggest predictor of virality was whether a social media post had a word in it referring to an outgroup. So, for example, if Ben Shapiro talked about Joe Biden, or if um, the New York Times talked about um, Trump or some Republican senator, uh, these social media posts were particularly likely to go viral. Uh, An outgroup language was a much stronger predictor of virality than moral emotional language and negative language. So each additional outgroup word added to a post led to a predicted 68% increase in uh, retweets um, on Twitter or reshares on Facebook. So this was a very big effect. And uh, sort of in our next round of analysis, we looked at what might be driving this effect. And we did this by looking specifically at um, Facebook reactions. So we also found that outgroup words were incredibly highly likely to predict angry reactions, haha reactions, and comments, whereas words referring to the in-group were more likely to predict um, likes and heart reactions. So 
basically what we found was instances of referring to an outgroup were sort of associated with these more negative Facebook reactions and referring to an in-group was associated with more positive reactions. But importantly, outgroup language got a lot more engagement overall. So it seemed like outgroup animosity, at least in this political domain that we studied, was a much stronger predictor of virality than in-group favoritism. And I think the conclusions of this paper are slightly worrying because it suggests that social media platforms might be creating perverse incentives for politicians and news sources and also individuals, just, you know, like you and me on Twitter to dunk on our outgroup um, in order to get seen by the social media machine. And um, yeah, a lot of this paper came out before like uh, Francis, Francis Haugen, the whistleblower came out and all these leaked internal documents came out from Facebook, which sort of supported some of the main conclusions of the paper. Um, so yeah, that's the gist of the project. Um, so I have a question about that, uh, mm-hmm. or two questions. So I guess one is if people like what you're saying would only be true if people like knew that that's what would cause their posts to go viral, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, sort of you're implying, you know, people kind of have this internal model of what makes a post go viral is talking about the outgroup. And so I'm going to talk about the outgroup and it's going to cause all this outrage and so on. So I guess like if people already know that, then, you know, <laughs> did you find anything new in your research? But yeah, kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't really mean it that way, but, um, but also like, I guess like morally, do you actually think that people have that uh, working model of it? Or did you just tell them something new that now you've, you're the problem? <laughs> I'm sorry, this question is so uh, <laughs> accusatory. I guess I still have some hurt feelings. <laughs> I'm going um, to step up and walk out already. No, it's okay. It, it's a fine question. So is your question that... Um, basically did everyone already know that like you know dunking on the outgroup goes viral online or yeah yeah uh to an extent yes i think people are aware of this we actually just did a survey recently where we asked them and and this is a paper that we're we kind of have we're we're about to submit it's like an invited submission and uh we we gave people a survey and we asked them what kind of content do you think is likely to go viral online? And we have a lot of categories like divisive content, outrage, dunking on an outgroup, and then we have positive things like accurate information, et cetera. And we find that people's lay perceptions or intuitions generally align with uh, what we found in our research. People do think that divisive content goes viral online. People do think misinformation goes viral online. They think moral outrage goes viral. So people's intuitions do align with our results. Uh, So yeah, that's true. Um, Another interesting finding we have from the survey in progress is we find, we re-ask these questions and we ask people whether we think, whether they think divisive, whether they think these content categories should go viral online. And people overwhelmingly think divisive content and moral outrage and all of these categories should not actually go viral online. And Republicans and Democrats actually agree on that. So that's something we find that people kind of agree on, like ways we should improve social media platforms. Um, but yeah, so I, I will say the results of our research align with people's lay intuitions, but there are still some critics. There are... Um, 
like as Paul brought up earlier, Facebook responded to our article, or more specifically, they responded to a Washington Post piece that we wrote that was sort of expanding on the conclusions of the article. And they had a lot of comments. They were not happy about the research as to be expected. But I mean, they said that social media essentially just holds a mirror up to society and reflects, and I quote, the good, the bad, and the ugly of society. And they say that people are, they express polarizing opinions online because people can have heated discussions in real life. So there are some people like Facebook who think that we're, we're wrong. Uh, but yeah, our survey data does show that these results might align with people's lay intuitions. Although one more point, I do think the effects that we found, um, were stronger than what I expected them to be. Um, I don't think I'm like entirely surprised, but I was surprised by the strength of the effect size and how outgroup language was such a stronger predictor than these other existing predictors of virality. Yeah. So I, thought the um just the implications for the platforms were were quite interesting i mean it like so facebook that you know it it's not a mirror because there's an algorithm that's trying to put right. the the most engaging content in front of you right like so if you if they literally were just showing you every everything posted by your friends and the pages in chronological order uh you know and they weren't um amplifying certain content then i think they would have an argument that it's just a mirror. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, Mm -hmm. you, I think there would still be a case to made to be made in that case that, well, it's a harmful mirror because look, the stuff that is going viral is, is the divisive stuff. So even though Mm -hmm. you're just listing stuff in chronological order, the stuff that people are just naturally resharing tends to be this divisive stuff. So, Mm -hmm. you know, your mirror sucks, your mirror is harmful. So there'd be a case there, but it's, it's even worse than that because I mean, we, nobody knows what the algorithm is, is necessarily doing, but no. like, I think, you know, I, I would not believe them if they said they weren't trying to put the stuff in front of people that got them commenting and got them engaging and engaged and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I, um, I thought the, the implications were quite interesting and, and your response to them was quite interesting where you raised uh i there was one piece you linked to that described really um this interesting internal stuff going on inside facebook where they had sort of started doing some research about are we are we like are we uh promoting um sort of partisanship and polarization uh are we um promoting divisive content and that research was uh, abandoned because they had decided yeah. that they just kind of didn't really want to know. Um, yeah. So what do you, what do you think about the implications of this research for those social media companies? And what do you actually think that in a perfect world, they, they could do beyond just sort of studying it and um, cause they're never going to just sort of find, Oh, look, we're having this negative social effect. Let's just shut down our company. So what, um, what kind of steps? Because some of these articles did mention that there were some things that you can do and and had been proposed, but these companies right. just weren't sort of weren't doing them. 
Yeah, so a, a few responses to that. Uh, yeah, I agree that the mirror is a bad metaphor, and we should perhaps say that social media companies are more like a funhouse mirror where they sort of warp certain certain things. I think what I said in the Twitter thread in response to them is Facebook says they reflect the good, the bad, and the ugly of society, but their social media algorithms seem to amplify the bad and the ugly and downgrade the good. So I don't think Facebook has a strong argument there at all. And I don't think many people are also on Facebook's side. Again, as we find in a representative sample of participants, that people seem to be aware that social media companies are amplifying negative or divisive content. Um, and yeah, I did, I think in that thread, I talked a little bit about um, some internal research uh, Facebook or Meta it was doing. So specifically, I talked about, and this was reported by um, a New York Times article a year or two ago, um, someone created like a machine learning classifier. So they had people like rate a bunch of social media posts on Facebook uh, and rate how bad for the world they thought these posts were. So these could be like posts uh, by Trump, you know, discrediting the election, something like that most people might say is like bad for the world. And then they created a machine learning classifier that could detect social media posts that people would be likely to think are bad for the world. And they found that, unsurprisingly, these Facebook posts got more engagement. Um, so then Facebook tested a strategy to downrank these posts in the newsfeed, but Facebook executives decided not to implement the strategy because they found that this reduced overall engagement. And if you read more of the like leaked internal stuff, it seems like this has happened all the time that Facebook has constantly, and probably other social media platforms, we just have less information, but Facebook has constantly made these trade-offs between like, um, should we downrank harmful content um, if this reduces overall engagement? So I have very little hope that social media platforms are going to solve all these problems internally because I think they know that like uh, amplifying harmful content keeps people on these platforms longer. I think uh, the solutions will likely have to come from outside the social media companies uh, with either public pressure, I think helps a bit if you put the pressure on people. Um, and I think Facebook has been facing a bit more scrutiny and maybe has been trying a little harder than they used to, uh, but still not that much. I'm, I'm not very convinced. Uh, so I think ultimately solutions might come through regulation, but then we would have to like depend on our politicians uh, being, uh, you know, able to understand social media platforms and pass effective regulation. Although, you know, certain politicians like Amy Klobuchar has been trying really hard to pass uh, some of these bills. There are a lot of bills being discussed in Congress, like the Filter Bubble Transparency Act. And um, I mean, as we show in this paper that we're like currently working on, um, a lot of people like, a lot of people agree harmful content should not be amplified. People, we also find that people agree that social media platforms should be more transparent about how their algorithms work. They should give users more control over what's in their feed. Like Republicans and Democrats like uniformly agree about basic solutions. Uh, so we could easily get some of these basic solutions implemented. But yeah, I, again, they're unlikely to come from inside the companies and these, they might have to come outside. These people who are sort of like filling out your surveys so angelically and, and mm -hmm. saying that 
you know, like, yeah, absolutely. Like divisive content shouldn't be amplified by these big, bad social media companies. These are the same people who are like amplifying the content, right? Like we, we're sampling from the same population, right? Yeah. And I think that's like the paradox, uh, like, cause I was asked and this survey was partially inspired. Like I was asked in, I think a podcast interview, like, well, if people are, are engaging with this content, doesn't it mean they like it? And yeah, I, I think in some sense, it's true that we, that we like the drama. That's why we watch reality TV. We, we like drama. It draws our attention, but I think there is a little bit this type of thing where like we we know it's probably bad for us to consume overly negative or overly contentious content but it's just like we can't look away it's like how you know we'll stop to watch a car crash on the side of the road it will attract our attention um it will get our engagement but that doesn't mean we want like more car crashes in the world or we want to always watch car crashes it's just it's something that captures our attention in the moment. And there's some research, I know this is controversial about like social media addiction. Some people don't like that metaphor, but there is research that suggests that we also just use social media because it's habit forming and because of um, self-control issues. Like, and uh, I, I think social media platforms are designed in such a way to just capture our attention and engagement. But I don't think what captures our attention attention is a good model for what people want to see in the world, essentially. I was wondering the same thing as Paul, and I, I'm always curious, like, I, I haven't read your paper in detail. I've read all the, like, op-eds and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Paul. But, I mean, I, I have the content in there, just not the, like, technical details. It's okay. So, you have there were a lot of results. There <laughs> <laughs> was a lot of numbers. Yeah. yeah we- so, I, I just wanted to ask about, like, how do you uh, control for like trolls or fake accounts, bots, whatever, like, um, and how much of that accounts for something going viral? Cause like, I don't know. I have a sense that like, when I look at the comments of, you know, viral posts, it just seems like most of it is complete garbage. Like not even like, they don't even seem like real people to me honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if that's just my elitist position that, you know, people who have really broken English and uh, are saying random things are just like not real. Um, but yeah, I guess like, is that something that you've looked at? Do you have a sense of how, what proportion of the virality of a post is accounted for by like not everyday Americans? Yeah, so we don't look at it this it in this paper, and part of that is due to data access limitations. Like Facebook specifically gives us very, very little data, and Facebook is actually shutting down the CrowdTangle, which is their platform through which we were able to get data for the study. Uh, probably because Facebook doesn't want researchers to publish all this negative research wow. on their platforms. They're shutting this. I mean, part data of their response down. to you was. Oh, but you know we're we're engaging in all this research even with our critics. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they they don't. That's not a very like yeah. Um, mm. Facebook does give grants out to researchers, and they give grants to like you know great researchers. I'm not going to criticize the researchers who get these grants, but it is a bit suspicious when you sort of look at the like the type of grants Facebook gives out tend to be like 
to research that could be interpreted as favorable toward Facebook, or at least uncontroversial. Facebook is not going to fund research that is critical of their platforms. They do some, I know there is some great internal research that's critical of their platforms, but we just don't get to see that. So Facebook is not so good with transparency. Not that other platforms are. TikTok isn't very good with transparency right now. Um, but uh yeah, as for Rachel's question about the bots, there are some other papers that look at like the proportion of engagement that is driven by bots on various platforms. Like there was that big study about um, how uh, in 2018 by like Vasohi about how fake news uh, on Twitter can sometimes go more viral than real news. At least fact check fake news can go more viral than real news. And they found that this pattern isn't driven by bots, that it seems to be driven by real engagement. However, a limitation with all this research about estimating bots on social media is a lot of them are based on these machine learning classifiers that detect the probability that someone is a bot. And I've used some of these classifiers in my research and they can be, you know, of questionable performance. Like sometimes they say that I am likely to be a bot because I retweet a lot. Like that's a suspicious cute. You're not writing your own tweets and you're retweeting a lot. So yeah, we don't know, but I'm guessing it's a lot of it is real people and real partisans. And even if a substantial proportion is bots, the bots are going to amplify certain content that gets seen on our news feeds. So we had um, Chris Ferguson on a few pods ago. I don't know if you listened to that episode, um, but he's very much in the camp of we don't really have good evidence for the harmfulness of social media. And mm, so, like, mm-hmm. just to, you know, like, in case Chris is listening to sort of uh, at least present that viewpoint in steel manner, I mean, I was interested by this um, this evidence that polarization has been greater in older U.S. adults than younger U.S. adults mm-hmm, who use mm-hmm. social media less. Um, yeah, what what do you think about that piece of evidence in particular and just this general question, this sort of John John Haight uh, view that we, you know, we need to ban people under 13 from using social media versus like a Chris Ferguson who's just like, no, nah, like the evidence is really not in. Where do you sit on all that? Yeah, I think I'm sympathetic to both sides. Like, I think a lot of researchers were really critical of John Haidt's Atlantic article, um, which I thought was a very well-written article that had a lot of good metaphors for, you know, how, you know, social media seems to be for a lot of us. But I do think a lot of the article was speculative and him sort of theorizing about, like, what he thinks social media is doing to democracy. So I think from like a scientific standpoint, a lot of scientists thought he was overclaiming. Um, however, I, I am like a bit sympathetic because sometimes I think overclaiming has a purpose when you call it, you know, theorizing or speculating or whatever. But I, I, I don't think that Heights article necessarily aligns with the state of the scientific evidence. I think we are uncertain about the harms of social media. And I think it's hard to test. I think we don't have a lot of data, partially because social media platforms don't give us a lot of access to data. The harms also seem to be very differential. I mean, Amy Orban has some great work about how um, a lot of the harms seem to be uh, with, like, for, you know, adolescent girls of a certain age. Um, The harms are sort of amplified, but maybe not at different ages, ages. And if you look at the overall effect sizes, the overall effect sizes are small. 
Still, we have some good evidence. Like we have some studies showing that, you know, deactivating Facebook for a month can improve your well-being and decrease polarization, at least in the U.S. Um, so Chris made a Chris made a good point that it's hard to avoid de- demand effects in that kind of study because it's very difficult to conceal your hypotheses when you're paying people to deactivate Facebook then asking them about their well-being. Yeah, and that's that's a really good point too. And I think it would be hard... Like, I think that's a good study overall with, like, what we're kind of allowed to do, not having access to all this internal research, uh, internal data from the social media companies. I think if we had that internal data, we'd be more sure about, like, what social media does. Uh, however, I think, like, despite lack of certainty, there is reason to be concerned. Uh, like, I can't really claim from my paper that social media really, you know, has a causal impact on polarization. However, I found some, like, uh, correlational results that suggest that polarizing content tends to be amplified. And there's reason to maybe expect that that might have an effect on cor- polarization. We're just not sure. So I think, I think there's good reason to be tentative, but there's also good reason to be concerned. Yeah. Also the, um, the response from Facebook also said that uh, the, making the claim that just 6% of what people see on social media has to do with political content so I feel like if that's true, which I'm not really sure, I didn't really cite a source as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that is true, then like that, I think would also sort of tamper the claims that that uh, social media is like really bad for you know polarization. If like only a small, very small fraction of it has to do with political stuff. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, Joshua Tucker's lab recently came out with a paper in Science Advances showing that only like a third of Twitter users follow political elites or news sources at all on Twitter. So a lot of, even though a lot of us think that Twitter is this hyper-political social media, it isn't for the majority of people. However, he found that among those people who are politically active on Twitter, they tend to be very, like, very polarized. Like, they will... Like, they will mostly retweet in-group sources, and if they ever retweet an out-group source, it will, like, only be to dunk on that out-group source. So, uh, again, I think this points to the point about differential effects. If you're, like, embedded within, like, a a hyper-partisan network on social media, that probably has, like, some, you know, polarizing effects, but, you know, it might not to the average person. And then also there's, you know, the research about um, well-being and mental health, and a lot of that doesn't have to do with, uh, you know, um, politics at all, but more with like social comparison and all these other things. So I think it's a complex and nuanced story. And I, you know, I, I would say that it's definitely not like the cause of the increases in polarization that we have seen in the U.S. I think um, we had a recent I, I was on a recent paper led by Jay Von Bavel, and I, I think we referred to it sort of like as an ex- accelerant of polarization. It sort of accelerates some of these trends, but I think it's um, but I think it's very context dependent. And I think uh, I, I, again, a lot of older individuals tend to be the most polarized, and a lot of them are consuming Fox News or very partisan TV, and I think that has a big effect. But I will say, I think social media is likely to be like the future. I think people, you know, social media users are increasing and I think TV is dying off. So I still think it's worth trying to like 
solve these problems now and be concerned. And I think what Facebook likes to do with the uncertainty around these questions is they weaponize that uncertainty. And they're like, look, all this research showing that like, you know, Facebook's actually good or it's like really uncertain. And I don't think that should be our response. I think we should like have, you know, a good objective scientific understanding of the uncertainty, but still be concerned and not just like let Facebook get away with, uh, you know, it's uncertain. So let's just throw our hands up and do nothing about it. Hmm. Why do you think people like dunking on other people so much on social media? I know this is maybe more of a micro question and you're kind of a macro observational data guy, but like, I mean, often uh, you'll hear people say things like, oh, it, it gets approval from the in-group, right? Mm-hmm. It, gets, it gets likes, right? And like, and if your study, um, if the theory is accurate, then that's true, right? Like you, you might go more viral. Um, but I, I, yeah, like I guess it. I've been sort of looking at Twitter recently and I don't know, man, it really seems to me like a lot of what's driving people to be constantly sort of, oh, we lost Rachel. Oh, oh no hi, way. Rachel. I assume she'll be back. She got anyway. mad and left. <laughs> <laughs> she stormed up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, let's keep going. Uh, you know, who needs her? Um, who needs her? A lot of what's driving people is sort of like these um, ongoing simmering resentments that people have towards mm-hmm. towards sort of these like sort of loosely connected uh, sort of opponents or enemies, right? Like, and I guess I'm thinking like, so before social media, when we lived in smaller communities or, you know, when our communities were much more sort of... Um, uh, we had less sort of connection uh, outside of, you know, immediate family, work, uh, social circles. It would probably be um, more difficult to have these sort of simmering resentments, right? So, like, now, like, I'm on Twitter. Maybe there's an academic who I don't follow. They don't follow me. But, you know, we've interact, had some negative interaction in the past, and I see them pop up every now and again. And then, you know, some news story comes out that's sort of like, supports what i was arguing for in our in our debate that we had like a year ago uh so now like i'll just send out this dunking tweet not you know not directly aimed at this person but it's sort of based on this ongoing resentment that i have towards these individuals in my mind and i guess i just see a lot of posts on twitter seem to be motivated by this sort of not necessarily wanting the approval of the in-group but this like, yeah, I'm still kind of mad at this this person <laughs> who I have this ongoing disagreement with, and this supports me in my sort of ongoing argument in my mind against this person, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna post this. So yeah, I guess not just wanting the in group's approval, but sort of wanting wanting to score points in like ongoing resentments that we have towards these like loose contacts, these loose social media contacts that we just didn't used to have. Yeah, uh, that's a very good point. And um, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about it, mostly speculative. But like, when you talk about loose resentments, like my immediate thought is like the kind of the current Twitter controversy right now, how all the psychologists are dunking on that PNAS paper, the econ PNAS paper, um, where, you know, psychologists are saying like, oh, look, economists discovered self-report scales Mm -hmm. mean something. And it seems like that 
is like a classic example of like there is resentment of psychologists toward economists like they they think unjustly often economists get all the attention as this serious social science so i think there is maybe some joy there and yeah they do get more money and they get you know more attention and they're thought of as better in many ways but uh, yeah i um i think that might be a case of like you know this is an example where we can dunk on economists in general your economists is a, a field and i think some of it is uh, i think there are many motivations i think one of them is potentially status seeking it inflates the status of your group um if you dunk on an outgroup it, it will you know and it will deflate the status of economists if you're you're boosting um yeah and i i think there is some research on uh, i think by michael bang peterson about how like status seeking motivations can um are like correlated with uh posting kind of toxic content online so when people are posting toxic content it's often they're they're doing it to try to gain status and um i i think another thought is it could be i mean um i i look at it from sort of a social identity theory point of view that like you know belonging to an in-group fulfills a lot of psychological motivations like need for belonging and need to belong and sometimes yeah it's fun to be part of a group online and uh part of how you can like feel good about your own group is to dunk on another group and um and then i guess the third is like the social reinforcement of social media platforms uh you do what gets you engagement and william brady has great research showing that if you got a lot of likes and retweets on moral outrage that you posted yesterday you're more likely to post moral outrage today so um yeah i think it's a combination of those those factors maybe some more but i'm curious to hear what what you guys think about why people like to dunk on Rachel outgroups. welcome back what, yeah what welcome think? back we miss you yeah i'm not sure what happened my computer just like went to sleep for a second um come on you stormed just... off in outrage we know <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> no uh yeah i don't know i mean i think that it's i feel like it's hard for me to like em- empathize with people who are you know sh- getting morally outraged online because i'm just like why like why do you care so much <laughs> like you know um I-, I agree with what you're saying though about like just needing to belong and uh, it might also be just like people are bored and they, you know, it's something to do and it gets them, you know, it get, it, it's like engaging. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, and I wonder about like finding ways to replace that. Like, I think when you were talking about solutions and you're talking about uh, the public putting pressure on social media to change their algorithms, things like that. Um, I'm also wondering about potential interventions for, to change people's behavior so that they don't, you know, make things go viral because the, you know, of like negative content and outrage. And, uh, and I guess that, you know, that's obviously much harder to do. I'm talking about like fundamentally changing your natural instinct, but, um, yeah, I, I think that that is a, another way of looking at it. Yes. Um, yeah. Paul? Uh, 
I'm going to edit this pause out uh, of the podcast and <laughs> let me edit it. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Where, where, where should we go with this? I, I actually think like the... Yeah, I'm not optimistic about solutions, right? So the um, I believe there's a legal principle where like if you're on the board of a company, you're not actually allowed to do anything that hurts the profitability of that company legally. So the you know we can criticize Facebook's board members for uh, stopping this uh, the research or stopping the algorithm that was um, uh, reducing sort of the divisive content, but also reducing people's time spent on Facebook. But um, I think in the legal system of the US, they actually have a responsibility to shareholders to do exactly that kind of, I guess, regardless of the social, the social harm uh, being caused. And I think it would be very difficult to legislate um, in a way that wasn't, uh, I, know, I guess, um, vi- violating rights of like freedom of speech and stuff like that like i don't like i mean passing maybe there's what like there's you know people smarter than me could probably think of a way to to do this but i find it hard to imagine legislation that would sort of legally mandate facebook to promote certain content over others or like could you could put like reliable limits on the algorithms that they could have that would stop them um you know stop the phenomenon that you observe steve the of this kind of content going viral and i also just think at the individual level right like so we could invent an app say like it's like a plug-in to facebook and it's going to sort of filter your facebook feed so you won't see as much of the uh the divisive content um but i'd be quite pessimistic about people using that because the reason this phenomenon exists is because people are drawn to slash kind of addicted to this this kind of content so they might put on that put that filter on their phone in a moment of sort of moral clarity thinking yeah no this will be better for me and then just like sort of look at their feed and, and be like oh this is a bit this is a bit boring like i'm not getting the same sort of adrenaline rush of like seeing people on my side dunk on our collective enemies so yeah like i almost always come back with political polarization to just being a bit pessimistic about uh, the pro- possibilities for solutions. Yeah, but I mean, like Steve was saying, like people do, they don't like uh, the moral outrage and they don't like the polarizing well, they content. Say, and- they say they don't in surveys to make themselves sound good, but then they, they <laughs> after they get off the survey, they're just behaving in this way still. I mean, I think it is like similar to like diet or something right. where people will, but but like if I could put a filter on myself where it just like like actually controls me from not eating any diet. No, but that diet it, diet is like hard. Like you have to like make decisions at every moment and like it's really easy to to fall into temptation. But like if I have like you know like a filter on your phone that doesn't it just like it's not gonna show me any of the bad content. Then I I mean I would do that. I think a lot of people would. I don't know. I guess you're not uh, allowed to. That would be bad for the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's tricky. I'm not optimistic about individual level solutions, like getting people to install a filter willingly. Because um, oftentimes, I mean, I think you've seen those like there are those studies where you like give 
you know, people the option of eating healthy food who eat junk food and they, they won't do it. Like it's, I think if you just give people the option, that's not going to change anything. I, but I think like it's, some of these solutions are so easy internally from Facebook because Facebook, for instance, they, um, more reporting from the New York Times, like Facebook before elections, they will uprank more trustworthy, trustworthy or authoritative news sources and downrank unreliable news sources. So they did this before the 2020 election, uh, but then they immediately reversed this after the 2020 election and just went back to normal. Facebook could do, you know, just year round, like uprank more accurate news. And our self-report data says that, you know, people support that. People want accurate stuff to be amplified. So I don't, I don't know how like legislation would have to be written. I don't know how exactly you would mandate the companies to do that. That's, that's what I do struggle with, but like it, it would just be, it's not hard for them to like program these solutions. It's just like hard to get them to do it, I guess. Mm. Um, I think it is hard to measure the reliability of different news sources. Uh, I also think it's like, I mean, take the Biden laptop story, for example. So Facebook, um, I don't know if they, I, I, my, my recollection is they completely banned sharing the New York Post story about um, Hunter Biden's laptop. On uh, Twitter, I think. Bri- briefly, yeah, yeah. But before the 2020 election. Yeah. Um, you know, based on the fear that it was like Russian misinformation and it was, it was going to sway, sway the election or something like that. Um, which like, you know, I, I was a bit surprised how just okay with that everybody <laughs> seemed in, in, you know, like liberal, liberal social circles. Cause it, it seemed to me like, like obviously at least possibly, you know, a very kind of anti-democratic thing to do, like, like actually just censoring information, um, uh, based on its possible political implications. And, you know, like I remember we had um, our friend, our good friend Manny on the pod, who was just like confidently saying, well, yeah, like, but everybody knew that was just misinformation. It just wasn't true. And it's later come out that it actually like was the guy's laptop and there actually was stuff on it, you know, probably not stuff that should influence, influence your vote, uh, whether you, you're going to vote for Trump or Biden, but like, it was like, there was legitimate information uh, being censored and being, uh, you know, hidden from the U.S. public based on, like, just decisions by like huge billion-dollar corporations, and you know that's that's obviously a situation that could be bad uh, in a lot of ways. So yeah, like I, yeah, I mean, I don't. I guess I'm just saying it might not be as easy as you're making it out to you know, up, uprank um, accurate news sources and, and downrank inaccurate news sources. Yeah, know. I mean, so I, I agree with you that there are always going to be edge cases that are really, that people disagree on that are, are really hard to decide. I, I agree with you that um, I actually don't know enough details about the Hunter Biden laptop, so I'm not going to, like, say what my opinion is, but I, I think the story turned out to be more complex than what a lot of people thought, uh, to my knowledge. And I think people were making like trying to make a very quick decision and maybe they made the wrong decision there to censor it. And I think sometimes with, you know, it is hard for us to figure out what is true. However, there are 
easy cases <laughs> where everyone agrees. Like we, our survey data shows that people can, you know, kind of reliably distinct, distinguish between, you know, trustworthy and very untrustworthy news sources. They can distinguish between blatant misinformation and, uh, you know, good information. And there are like companies like NewsGuard that sort of rate the reliability of various news sources. And, and there is some disagreement, but there is also like, you know, a lot of correlation there. So uh, like, I, I think, you know, just not amplifying like blatantly anti-vax or conspiratorial things or just, you know, amplifying news sources that, uh, you know, have uh, fact checkers or ha like have a history of publishing some reliable claims and also trying not to be too politically biased with it. I, I think like in aggregate, it is actually kind of relatively easy to distinguish between, you know, um, what most people agree is true and what most people would like agree are blatant falsehoods. But then there, there will always be the controversial cases, but, um, yeah. Okay. Paul, okay. Stormed <laughs> off. <laughs> All of us will have our turn to storm off. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You are fake um, news. Preposterous. <laughs> Sorry. We didn't see that one coming. I stormed off. I'm back though. I'm, I've calmed down. Okay. Okay. So I'm okay. just saying, I, I agree and I disagree. I think they can do better than what they're currently doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know who else could do better than they're currently doing? SPSB. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, yeah, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. I had a feeling it was going to be a fun, a fun podcast and it, it definitely was. And I, it was very fun. Don't, I yeah. don't think you're going to get canceled. Um, Although Rachel and I, there's, there's a lingering possibility there. As always. Everyone will be cancelled in the future. One day. For 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Um, all right, I still owe you a coffee. Because uh, I do apparently it. can't tell people with Middle Eastern names apart. And that's a whole whole other cancellation episode that we could, we could go into. <laughs> we'll have to hear yeah. more about that so like, uh, Yeah, let's catch up soon. And, um, let's yeah, do it. Take care, I guess. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>